Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. Today, Pastor Jason picks up where he left off two weeks ago in this part 25 of his Walk Through the Book of Acts series. Today, his sermon is entitled, Correcting the Conflict. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, and today Jason is looking at verses 1 through 7. Here's Jason. Well, welcome once again to Rancho Baptist Church. I am Pastor Jason, and we are so thankful that you chose to come in and worship together with us this morning. Here amidst the sort of gloomy weather, huh? First off, I wanted to say thank you to Pastor Shane for filling in for me last week and bringing the word and doing such a wonderful job. Second, I also wanted to, and and this isn't an announcement, just kidding. I, I wanted to make one more mention of, again, the, these little buttons that you see some of us wearing, um, community groups. Please continue to pray. We are going to finalize all the, all the different groups this week. And Lord willing, next week you will begin to, to have phone calls from different ones, letting you know that you are in this particular group meeting at this particular time at this particular location. And praise the Lord, it seems like most people were able to get their number one choice. Again, not everybody can, but we are very, very excited about all the different people that have signed up. Last I heard it was around 250 people or or something. And if you have not signed up yet, please, please, you can sign up and, and yeah, ask the Lord to send you where He would want you. And where you would just be impacted. For those of you who have not been to, to RBC before, this might be your first time you are a visitor. Maybe you've only come here once or twice. When, when you came in, you received a bulletin. If you could fill out this information card, we would be very, very appreciative. Just give us a little bit of yeah, contact information as to maybe your telephone number, your email address. If you have any questions about the church, one of us will get back with you, one of, our, one of the pastors here. If you have any prayer requests, that would be great as well. Now, as you noticed, I was not here last week. My family and I took off to the mountains of Wyoming and went to Jackson Hole and, and had a wonderful time. Saw lots of wildlife such as moose and mule deer and bison. And at one point, I, I went with my boys snowboarding on on the mountain there at Jackson, Jackson home, Jackson hole, sorry. And as we were there, I noticed this thing that looked kind of like a gondola, but it was much, much larger than a gondola. And actually it was a tram. And if you guys have ever been to Jackson hole, you, you might know about the tram. Or if you've been to, to Palm Springs, maybe you've taken the tram from Palm Springs up to the top there near Idlewild. The craziest thing about this tram is how huge it was. The other thing that, that, that was very peculiar to me were how many people were standing in line. As, as I came and, and, and the boys and I stood in line, I mean, the line just wrapped around forever. 
And it looked like there had to be at least 100 people in front of us. And as the tram came down, I thought, there is no possible way that we're going to make it from this place, our point in line, all the way to inside the tram. But lo and behold, I was wrong. There was a a man who was actually using a little clicker and and keeping track of how many people were, were getting into the tram. And then as you got into the tram, there was another man in there kind of, I don't know, forcing us, (laughs) that'd be a kind way to say it, forcing us to push up front and get as close as you could to one another. No, no, keep moving closer, keep moving closer. We got more room, we got more room. And and everybody's coming in and shuffling in. and, and, And before you know it, I didn't have any space to move. And then I noticed this little strap up on top, and I, well, I guess I'm supposed to hold on to that. I don't want to fall as we're moving and going in this tram way up this crazy mountain. So I put my hand up on, on, on this little strap. Well, that was a bad idea, because once I put my hand up there, everybody moved in, and now I couldn't move my hand. And, and I was locked in. And I think Wesley, my son, was the same, and both of us were looking at each other going, what are we doing here? And, 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 and it was... It was crazy, and, and yet at the same time, it, it was very well organized, and, and I'm sure that they knew exactly how many people could fit in this tram and how much weight you could handle. But you know what the most important thing for me was? As we're going up this hill, I couldn't see anything, so obviously it wasn't the view. It wasn't how comfortable I was because I was very uncomfortable. The thing I kept looking at was this great big cable. Right? And, and, and my mind kept focusing on the fact of, man, I'm glad that's a great big monster cable, but if that thing snapped, man, I, we'd all be done. Right? That, that was the most important thing of that whole experience. It wasn't so much the crowd and waiting in line and the nice guy clicking us in and then the, the not so nice guy telling us to crowd in further and further. What, 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 what really was the, the big thing for me was that big cable. And as I think of the church, what we're going to see today is something that that might surprise you. Because we're going to see conflict happen in in, in the church today. In the early church, and we've seen conflict before, we've seen problems in the church. But if I were to ask you, what is the thing that destroys churches? No doubt your answer probably wouldn't be what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 6. Your answer would be more of something like, well, heresy, Pastor Jason. Bad doctrine comes in and, 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 and destroys churches. Or sin, Pastor Jason, that comes in. Outright sin. Or you might say persecution. Persecution comes in and it destroys a church. And, and I would very much agree with you that all those things can destroy a church. But what we're going to see today is, is something different. Something that, that I would say has to do with more of the organizational structure of a church. And how if that isn't kept in tow, and if how we don't keep an eye on how we are facilitating things and, and how we are running things and, and the organizational structure behind a church, that can actually have some terrible effects on a church as well. In fact, if I were to ask you how should a local church be organized, we might have all sorts of different ideas. Some would say, oh, I know, Pastor Jason, what we should do is we should look at the professional business model. And we should look at all the great big businesses in the world and we should follow them. 
In fact, some have written books about just this very thing. And they say, oh, a church should be all about committees and subcommittees. And there should be detailed organizational charts with with rigid frameworks set in place to keep church running like a fine-tuned machine. And others would say, oh, no. We, we, we can't have all that organizational stuff. We can't have rigid framework. They would say, oh no, even membership and structure and all this order limits the, the power of the Holy Spirit working. And we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit. So, so they fall way over on the other pendulum. And, and, and I believe what we see from Scripture is, is something in the middle. That, that yes, we do need structure. Yes, we do need organization. We're going to see that this morning. But we also need the Holy Spirit, do we not? We need the Holy Spirit guiding, leading, and directing us. And that is what we're going to see today. So, so turn with me to, to Acts chapter Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And follow along with me as I, as I read out loud the wonderful Word of God. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that we need you. We need you to help us to understand your word accurately. We need your Holy Spirit to convict us and to put your word into practice, Lord. So we pray that you would make your word clear now. That you would use your word to transform our minds and to allow us to honor you in the way that we walk before you both as individuals and as a body here. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. So today what we're going to see is we're going to see how how a church should handle conflict. We're going to see how to keep Satan from dividing and conquering because that's what Satan is after, at least in this case. He wants to divide and conquer this early church in Jerusalem. And we're going to see that through these four glimpses or these four characteristics of what is happening in the church, of this conflict in particular. First, we're going to see the problem in verse 1. Then we're going to see the solution in, in the fact that the, that the apostles not only have a plan, but they have priorities. Then we're going to see the players who's involved in this. And then finally, what we're going to see is we're going to see the result. So let's look first at at the problem as presented to us in in verse 1. Now at this time, what time? Well, this points back to to chapter 5, verse 42, that that we looked at several weeks ago. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So it was this time when just before this, the Sanhedrin had told the apostles to stop preaching, once again, this name of Jesus Christ. Not only had they told them to stop preaching, but they had literally flogged them, whipped them. But instead of stopping the preaching of God's word, they continued to preach God's word. And every day they were meeting in the temple and from house to house. And at that time, as they were doing these things, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So we see that that at this time, the context is is when the church is growing. It, It was already quite large, right? And yet we know from from what we've seen earlier in the book of Acts that there was not a needy person among them, that they were looking after one another. And yet somehow, as the church continues to grow and grow and grow, we see one of the growth pains that the church has is that some within this church were being overlooked. And we see that this church is constructed of two different groups. We have to remember that the church in Jerusalem was composed of Jews. This was a Jewish congregation. But even as the Jewish congregation, they were separated into two different groups. And one group was complaining. It was murmuring. This this isn't a good thing. (laughs) It's it's literally to utter, make an utterance in a low tone of voice. It's it's behind the scenes talk. It's something that Philippians 2.14 would command us not to do. And and yet this is what happens because of this conflict that is happening between these Hellenistic Jews and, and these native Jews. Now, who are these two different Jewish segments? Who, who are these Hellenistic Jews? And what we have to recognize is these were the Jews that were part of what I've termed before the diaspora, that the dispersion, where, where Jews were separated from the Holy Land, from Jerusalem. They were sent out. They were actually pushed out. And as such, many of these Jews, these Hellenistic Jews, they were from different countries. They spoke different languages. We we saw this earlier in the book of Acts, right? In chapter 2, when it talks about the the apostles speaking in tongues, it was these languages that that they were preaching in, speaking in. So these Jews were from different locations. They spoke a different language. Their heart language was different, but they also spoke Greek. And that's what they were all about. They could not speak Hebrew or Aramaic, which is what the native Jews were speaking. And and that's significant because that means they couldn't read Hebrew. Right? And so what would they do for their Bibles? They would use the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, so they're different on many aspects. And, and how did these two groups work with one another? It, it doesn't tell us any of that. It, it doesn't tell us how these two groups would then gather together if they couldn't understand Hebrew and, and the, the other group was using Hebrew. No doubt there was some sort of separation going on. And, 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 and with the separation and all that was happening, we see that this little bit of conflict, this contention rises up. But it's not just over the language and it's not just over the location of where they were from, 
But it's the fact that these Hellenistic Jews, they had taken a lot of the Greek culture and had adopted it for their own. So the way that they even looked at life, the way that they thought, the way that they taught one another, the way that they lived their life would be much more Greek than these native Jews. And so as a result, there's just more and more conflict and the, and the possibility of, of more and more conflict happening. And then add on top of this who these native Jews were. Remember, these are the ones that, that, that live in this particular location. So not only do they speak Hebrew or Aramaic, not only do they use a Hebrew Bible, but this was their stomping grounds. This, they were the locals in this particular spot. And I believe all of this is adding to this aspect that, that the unity of the church was in jeopardy. And why is that? Because their widows were being overlooked. That means to pay insufficient attention to. To leave unnoticed. Really what, what it connotes is the idea of neglect. And yet as we look at verse 1, you don't see anything that, that makes us believe that they did it intentionally. It wasn't as if these native Jews said, okay, you know what? All of you widows that, that are our friends, you guys eat really fast. And then when the Hellenistic Jews show up, we could just say, sorry, we're out of food. No, that, it doesn't tell us anything like that. I don't believe it was some intentional thing that they were doing. What I believe happened, which is what happens a lot in churches, is they fell through the cracks. And for whatever reason, they were overlooked to such an extent that they continued to be overlooked, 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 until finally somebody said something. We have to recognize, too, that, that it wasn't normal for widows to be overlooked. It wasn't normal for widows not to be looked after. In fact, it was demanded, it was commanded in Scripture back in Deuteronomy, chapter 14, that God told the nation of Israel to look after widows. And it was something inbred in their culture. So it was only natural for the church to start doing that as well. But if these Jewish ladies were from different lands, then they didn't have a family to look after them if their husbands died. And so it would be the responsibility of the church to look after them, and yet they're not being looked after. And there's even some, some understanding of the way that, that the serving of the food was happening that it must have been more about gathering a whole bunch of, of money together and then giving that money out to the widows and allowing them to get food, but that wasn't working for them. And so what do we see here? We see that Satan is, is coming after the church, this time in a much more subtle way. And instead of coming after the church from, from without, like the Sanhedrin, or coming from within, like he did with... Ananias and Sapphira, where we see an open sin resulting in instant death. Why? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Instead, what we, what we see here is, is something nuanced and, 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 and much mellower that, that we're not going to see anybody die right in front of their whole congregation because of, of this. Instead, what he's trying to do is he's trying to divide and conquer. He's trying to divide the church. And no doubt there, there were some animosity going on between these two groups. I, I would think that the, that the Hebrews, the native Hebrews, looked at the Hellenists as, as some sort of unspiritual compromisers. 
And then the Hellenists would, would look at the native Hebrews as, as some sort of holy rollers. And the potential here is to destroy the church. Or at least to cause a church split. But we don't see that happening. Why? Because of the way that the apostles and the whole church handles this. Because of the solution presented. Look at, look at verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. We see first who's involved, that it's the twelve. Meaning the apostles. We see that it wasn't one man in charge, that they were functioning in plurality. And we see as well that they bring in the whole body. And they, they communicate to everyone. They clearly explain what the plan is. But do you, do you also notice that, that what they say is that this is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God to, to do this, this other thing, to serve tables? This, this word desirable is acceptable. It's not appropriate. It, literally, it's not pleasing. What? No, in their perspective, it's not pleasing to God for them to abandon the task, the calling that the Lord has given them, which is to bring the word and to pray for the body. In order to do what? In order to serve the tables. Why would they think that? Because they recognize as leaders that both are important. We, we see them say it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in, in, in order to serve tables. Do you notice what they don't say? All the things that they could say. They summon everybody together. And what they could say is, you know what? We don't really think this is that big of a deal. We, we know that it's important to some of you, and, and, and we have to understand too, that, that as far as the Hellenists go... Most believe that it was only 10 to 20 percent of the of the population of the whole church. So so we're talking a minority and they, and they could have used that as leverage. They could have played some sort of power play and said, no, no, that what's more important is for us just to spend time in the word. So we're not even going to worry about serving tables. No, that isn't what what they do. They, they don't ignore the problem. They don't spiritualize the problem and say, oh, no, what we're all about is the word of God. They reveal to everyone that this is indeed a legitimate problem. They don't ignore it. They don't spiritualize it. And why do they believe this is a legitimate problem? Because they recognize on, on both aspects that not only is the Word of God important, but looking after the children of God is important. They're saying people are important. And that the meeting of people's needs are important. And this is exactly what we see in verse 3. Look at verse 3. This is what they say then. On the basis of, okay, here's our priority. Our priority is the Word of God. But we're not saying that looking after the needs of the people isn't important too. It is. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. This is what good leaders do. They delegate responsibility. They recognize what their particular priority is, which in this case was the Word of God and prayer. 
And they say, okay, we can't do that. We can't spend all of our time now looking after this particular need, which is a great need. This is a problem that needs to be dealt with. So what we want you to do is we want you to select seven men. Notice how they bring in the body. They don't say, okay, we've chosen seven men. They say, no, you choose seven men that we may put in charge. And, and notice the, the requirements of these men. They, they, they don't just want to choose men randomly. There's an understanding in the way that these men are to be chosen that they have certain qualifications. And the first one that we see is that they are to be men. As they say, select from among you seven men. This doesn't mean that that women can't be involved in church. What it means is that those who lead in the church are to be men. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that many women play an important role in the church. We're going to see this in chapter 9 with a woman named Dorcas, whose other other name is is Tabitha. We're we're going to see it in chapter 16 with, with a woman named Lydia. In chapter 18 with Priscilla, we're going to see it in chapter 21 with, with the daughters of Philip. No, no, women should and do play a vital, important role in the church. But this idea of leadership, the leadership role in the church is, is given to men. And then notice too what else it says about them. That they are to be from among you. That means from among this particular body. Not from outside, but from within in this particular body. This is one of the the reasons why I was so excited about coming to RBC. Because the majority of the pastors here at RBC, they are from RBC. They were born and raised and discipled in RBC and now they are serving in RBC. And and I believe this is the the biblical model. This is what we see. We, We see that a church should be raising up its own leaders. And its pastors from within. But then they, they give us some other qualifications. Notice that they are to be of good reputation. That means to be spoken well of. To be attested or known to others. It's, it's the idea of their character being witnessed by others in such a way that they are well accepted by others. And this will be crucial for the position that and the work that they will be involved in but we see also that they had to be spiritual that they had to be full of the spirit that the major characteristic quality of their lives was that the spirit of god was empowering them enabling them directing them leading them so that they were indeed sensitive men but not just that they were full of the spirit but they were full of wisdom This would be godly knowledge lived out. And this is what they would need in in order to deal with this situation. That that if they didn't deal with this conflict correctly, everything would explode. Notice too here how the the apostles, they're, they're not holding on to their power with both hands. They're more than willing to give up and to delegate their power and authority to others. In order to meet the need of the body. In order so that the church can best be suited. They're seeking to make sure that the church has all the human resources needed in order to care for its own. They recognize far too well 
that the church needs new leaders just as, as we recognize that here at RBC. But they also recognize the calling that the Lord has given them. Look at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They recognize that they have a divine calling from the Lord and that that divine calling and responsibility includes these two huge major aspects of their lives as leaders. And that they are what? They are devoted to these things. This word devote means to persist in something. To busy oneself with something. It's, it's to associate so closely and continually with something that, that you want to stay close to it. This is something they're not going to let go. And you would think, yes, the first one. Usually we jump over prayer and we go right to the, to the ministry of the Word. Yes, that's what pastors are all about. That's what the elders should be about, the, the ministry of the Word. And I very much agree. That, that the ministry of the Word must be something that, that pastors see as their main responsibility. And no doubt here when it's talking about the ministry of the Word, it's talking about the Gospel, about giving the Gospel, but, but also it's, it's, it's talking about teaching God's Word to build up the faith and understanding of, of all the believers within that body. But don't miss what the ministry of the Word is tied to. What the ministry of the word is linked with in this verse. And, and you can see it in the way that Luke says it first. He says first, what they are devoted to, what they should be devoted to, which is what we as pastors and elders of RBC should be devoted to is to prayer. Because you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have a good preacher who is not a man of prayer. You cannot have a good pastor who is not a man of prayer. And, and can I just be completely honest with you all and let you know that I need your help in this area. Each week, please pray that before I ever show up here to give the word that I have spent adequate time saturating this message in prayer. It's so much easier to, to run and to dive into all sorts of other things, right? And to look around and say, oh yes, I, I know what's important. If this light is out and that's light, that light is out, well, well, we need to fix that or that the grounds aren't up kept very well. And those are all the things that, that everyone notices. But how do you know if I am actually praying? How do you know if the elders of this church are committed men to prayer? Please pray for us. Come and join us next Saturday when we meet. I know it's early in the morning. But it's needful. We, we, we see how needful it is. This is not the first time we've seen an emphasis on prayer in the book of Acts. We've seen it almost in every chapter. And now this is what they are committing themselves to. To prayer. And this is what we should commit ourselves to. As pastors as elders, but it's something that we should all be committed to, that our lives should be one of prayer. And so how does the body respond to this proposal, to this plan? 
Look at verse 5. And we see they, they respond with approval. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the whole spirit and of the Holy Spirit and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So first we see that this pleased them, that they thought it was a good plan. But did you notice that it says that the whole congregation went and chose these men? Remember what I said, that this congregation was made up of two separate groups. And one group was large and one group was small. You would think that if they were going to do this, that the that, that majority of the group would have been the native Hebrews. But no, the whole congregation did the choosing. And, and, and then what's even more significant are the names of the men that they chose. Because each one of these names are Greek names. And so what, what, who they were choosing is they were choosing Hellenists. They recognized that they were the ones being overlooked. So who did they want to minister? They wanted the Hellenists because they would know exactly how to deal with the situation. How gracious and loving, right? That they would go ahead and choose Hellenists. And who did they choose? Well, they chose seven men. And the, and the first two we're going to know a lot about. And we're going to know even more about Stephen as we continue on in, in Acts chapter 6. As we see first, he's characterized as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And, and we're going to see that that is indeed the kind of man that he is as we continue on through the book of Acts. But he's not just a man who, who tends tables, who serves through the ministry of giving food to others. We're going to see that, that really he's an evangelist. And, and, and when we look at Philip, even more so. Because Philip's going to be characterized at the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, actually. He's going to be called an evangelist. And we're going to see Philip taking the gospel, not only to the Samaritans, but to the Ethiopian eunuch. So we can't think of these men as just deacons, and that this is when the office of deacon began, because I believe it's premature, it's too early in the history of Christ's church, to say, oh yes, at this time we see the office of deacon and they were appointing deacons from this point on. No, we don't see that in Scripture. And actually when we get to Acts chapter 11, and this Jerusalem church is, is having a hard time, and they need money, they need help, a gift is sent to them in the form of money, and you would think that if it had to do with this kind of thing, it would have been sent to these seven men. Instead it's sent to the elders. So what do you think? After these seven men are, are then chosen, do they just start working right away? Do they just assume this responsibility and jump right in to this particular work? Is, is that the way that it happens? No, look, look, at, look at verse 6. And these, the, the seven men, they brought before the apostles meaning that the, the church body brought them before the apostles and after praying... They laid their hands on them. So we see ultimately that the apostles were the ones who were going to be doing the commissioning of these men. And, and I believe that there's, there's a point in here, it's, a, it's implied, that they could have said, okay, this one, no. The other six are good, but this one, no. So there, there, there's a point to where we have to understand the significance be, behind the laying hands on these seven men. First, this is the first time that we see this in the New Testament. Something that you'd see in the Old Testament. 
as Moses laid hands on Joshua to appoint him as, as his successor and, and items like that. But in the New Testament, this is the first time. And, and, and what is the significance? Well, it's identifying these men as leaders in front of the whole body. You know what? They could have just sent out a memo, right? They could have just told every, hey, tell such and such that these seven men, yeah, that, that sounds great. Let them go ahead and start this so that we can get back to what we really need to be doing. But instead, what do they do? They bring them in front of the whole body and they let everyone know these are the men that we agree with you that have been chosen. We affirm them. Not, not only that, I think it goes a step further and it signifies that, that all these seven men would be do, doing their work under the authority of the apostles. And, and this is the way that the church was going to function. But do we know that, that this was a good plan? I mean, it seems to make sense. No doubt that, that, that before the apostles summoned them in, in, in verse 2, that they spent some time in prayer, that they came up with this plan, that they talked about their priorities, as maybe one of them said, oh, no, I can handle this. And they'd say, no, 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 remember, we're supposed to be about this. But, but did this plan actually work? Was it a good plan? And I believe what's understood in, in, in verse 5 and, and verse 6 is that these seven men must have said, yes, we'll do this. But what did God think? And I believe the answer is found in verse 7. As we see the result. Look at verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so, so what do we see? We see two results that happened as a result of the way that they handled this conflict, this complaint that was raised that, that could have turned into some sort of church split, that could have destroyed the church. And the first thing that we see is that the word of God kept on spreading. You know, within these seven verses, we, we notice that, that there's a lot of emphasis on God's word. Look at verse 2. In the very last part of verse 2, it is not desirable for us to what? To neglect the Word of God. Then in verse 4, but we'll devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And then what do we see in verse 7? The Word of God kept on spreading. This doesn't mean that the, that the Word of God just, just became bigger and bigger and bigger and got larger and larger and, and before their very eyes that their Hebrew Bibles got big. No. It, it, it's talking about that the Word of God was growing and increasing. In that particular area, it was spreading out. Much like a farmer who then would throw seed, that, that you would see it continue to propagate and go out further and further. And God's Word, no doubt, was bearing much fruit. And, and we see that in, in, in the very next part of this verse, that not only was God's Word spreading, but the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. This is in the passive voice, meaning that someone other than themselves are actually doing this growing. This is God. Christ is continuing to grow His church. Why? Because they are standing on God's Word. Because they are continuing to preach God's Word. Isn't it interesting that how we started off in verse 1 is how we end in, in verse 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, verse 1. 
Verse 7. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. And what do we have sandwiched in between? We have this conflict. We have this complaint that arose. And if they hadn't handled it correctly, I don't believe we'd have the same result happening in verse 7. I believe what we would have seen if they hadn't handled it correctly is we'd see two churches emerge. And we'd have the maybe the first apostolic church of the Hellenistic Jews, and then we'd have the first apostolic church of the native Jews. But we don't see that happening. Why? Because they handled it correctly. And God honored their plan and honored their priorities. But notice here that that the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. Who that includes as it says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the, to the faith. That's just God's grace upon God's grace, is it not? This isn't what we would normally see. This isn't what you would normally expect. And no doubt it's not talking about the, the priests, the, the high priestly families that were in the Sanhedrin, those Sadducees that we've looked at that, that just beat the apostles back in, in the last chapter in verse 40. It, it, it's talking about the common priest. More like Zechariah that, that we saw in Luke chapter 1. That those ones are what? They're, they're becoming obedient to the faith. That's significant too because it describes the fact that they now have a new allegiance. They now have a new person or, or a new sub, submission to a higher authority that now they are submitting to Christ and to His apostles, not to the Sanhedrin. By God's wonderful grace and that God continued to grow and grow the church, even including some of the priests. And what we're going to see as we continue on in the book of Acts, that this growth leads to concern from from these opponents. And it generates even more of an increasing persecution. And we're going to see this persecution actually spread them out to where they're really not going to have a choice to stay in Jerusalem any longer. So let me close with with some points to ponder. As we no doubt have seen the early church handle this conflict correctly. Not only the apostles handled it correctly, as they, they didn't overlook the need, but they also didn't allow it to distract them from the central task of the Word of God. But these seven men must have agreed to go ahead and, and take up the responsibility. So... So that's very telling as well. But, but we see even the way that the interaction between these two Jewish groups was honoring to the Lord and that they submitted to the apostles' leading. And Satan, instead of getting a victory, lost on many accounts. He wasn't able to divide the church and he wasn't able to distract the apostles. But consider how the apostles were convinced that their primary calling was to proclaim the Word of God and to be dedicated to prayer, devoted to prayer, Knowing that they were called to, called to do, knowing what they were called to do, the, this gave the apostles a clear grasp of what they could not do. And our priorities should govern what we do as well as what we don't do or what, we're, what we abstain from doing. Is there something God has called you to do which you are not doing? Is there something that you should not be doing? Something you should be abstaining from? All of us that are fathers recognize that we have a calling to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
All of us that are husbands recognize that we have a calling to love our wives as Christ loved the church. These are things that we should be doing. Number two, consider the the emphasis that's placed upon the word of God in these verses. First, we see it was not to be neglected in verse two. Then we see the elders wanted to be devoted to the ministry of the word in verse four. And then in verse seven, we see in the word of God kept on spreading. What, What does this teach us? What does this teach you about the word of God in Christ church? How important is the word of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the, for the testimony of the early church. That when conflict came and that when an opportunity arose where Satan could have just went crazy and divided the church and caused a church split, that it didn't happen that way. That they walked in accordance with your word, with the calling that you had given them, Lord. We pray that you would allow us here to continue to seek your face, that we would be led by the Holy Spirit, that we would prioritize our lives in the way that you want us to, and that you would continue to guide and lead and direct us through your word as we go from here. In Jesus' precious name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot Rancho Baptist Church dot org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.